and we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. So I want to invite you to turn to Luke 16 this morning. I told the first service, like, last week was an amazing, fun week. It's Mother's Day. We're giving out candy. People are excited. I got to preach on the parable of the prodigal son, which is Jesus' most well-known parable. And it was just an exciting day. Then you turn to Luke 16, 1, and you find Jesus' like weirdest parable. Like it's literally, you're, I'm reading it this week, and I, and, and I knew this was coming because we planned these things out in advance. And I'm all excited about the prodigal son, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do about this like sleazy, dishonest guy who gets commended? What am I going to do with that one? So I'm really not sure. We'll see what God does, and we'll figure it out as we go. No, I'm just kidding. There's been a lot of reading and a lot of preparation going into, gone into this, and God has some good things in this, but I do want you to see, as I will just read through it here uh, as we get started, like this is a little bit of a strange one. So let me read it for you, and you'll nod your head in agreement. Uh, Luke 16, 1, So he also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their house. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Then he said to him, well, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Is it strange yet? Like, it's just weird, huh? Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, here's a, a familiar one. All right? The rest of that has been weird. Here's a verse you've heard before. So no servant, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I'm going to throw in a bonus verse for you. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Most commentators say that, that this is the hardest of all of Jesus' parables to understand. But there's actually a really solid and simple point to the whole parable. I want you to see a couple things about the context that will help us understand it. The first one is, in chapter 16, verse 1, he also said to his disciples. You'll remember, as we've been going through the last couple weeks, Jesus started this little discourse in chapter 15, verse 1. And there were tax collectors and sinners who were gathered together. And then there were Pharisees and scribes. And they were the rebellious and the religious people who had come together. And Jesus was talking to them. He told a couple, a set of three parables that had to do with God's heart for lost people. 
He told the parable of the lost coin, the parable of uh, the lost sheep, then the lost coin, and then the parable of the prodigal son. All of those stories had to do with God's heart for lost people. In the same conversation, at the same time, with the same audience, Jesus turns to his disciples and focuses what I just read toward his disciples. But what we also know and need to understand is that listening in on this were those same Pharisees. And in chapter 16, verse 14, when he says the Pharisees who were lovers of money, that's there intentionally to help us understand something about the Pharisees. We usually know when we talk about the Pharisees that they were religious people and they loved their religious rules. Another thing to understand about the Pharisees were that they were lovers of money. They actually made up rules in, in, that helped them to keep their own money rather than to take care of their aging parents, which is what the law of God said that they were supposed to do. They valued money and loved money. They valued the acquisition of money. They actually were impressed with each other when people could acquire more and more money. Another thing about the Pharisees is that they saw wealth as an indicator of God's blessing. Prosperity theology hasn't started in the tw- didn't start in the 20th century with guys like Oral Roberts and other people like that. That prosperity gospel and prosperity theology has been around as long as the gospel has been there to be perverted. And the Pharisees were those who saw more wealth as, di- as indicative of more divine blessing. So all of that context helps us to start to see what Jesus is going to get at here. I want to point out one other thing that is often overlooked. As I said, all of these stories that we've looked at the last few weeks are told to the same audience and are told like at the same time. While the parable of the prodigal son is primarily about God's heart for lost people, as we saw last week, there's actually also another thread that runs through it that helps connect those stories, that story, with what we just read. Think about the parable of the prodigal son this way. When Jesus told that story, he told a story about a younger brother who had foolishly acquired and then foolishly squandered his possessions. There was a father who had lavishly showered his possessions on the son. And then there was an older brother who was angry because he had to pick up the tab. You see, the theme of possessions and and earthly things runs right through the prodigal son, and then we come into it now in chapter 16, verse 1. The big idea of this, before I dig into the parable and we start to look at like the different pieces of it, I want to give you the big idea so that you can hang on to that as we look at some things and you think, man, that's hard to understand. The big idea that Jesus is getting across here is how to have an eternal perspective on earthly possessions. How do I have an eternal perspective on my earthly possessions? And that's what this parable is going to be about. And I'll say this as well. And when we listen to some of these stories, some of these parables, Jesus is always evoking feelings and emotions as he's telling these stories. He could have just came and gave propositional truth statements and put it on the PowerPoint. Click one, click two, click three. His disciples would have fallen asleep, as do some of you when I do that, and will in a few minutes when I put it on the PowerPoint. But Jesus told these stories in order to, like, grasp people's attention. And so, like, a parable like the prodigal son, man, that gets at our hearts, doesn't it? Like, there were tears last week when we're telling that story and you're seeing, like, just the feelings. This one's actually a little bit different. And Jesus is is using what, and that day, was a familiar style of teaching when he uses this parable in chapter 16. And he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And what he's doing is he's, like, engaging people's minds. 
all of the parables are short stories that illustrate a shocking spiritual truth. They just shock us in different ways. And so today, this one is supposed to make you, like, if you're sitting here and I'm talking and you're thinking, like, this doesn't make sense. I know that's normal for some of you. Like, right? Yeah, yeah. But today it might feel even more like that. And that's okay, because that's actually what Jesus is intending as he tells this story. That the way that he tells it is supposed to be, like, hard to grasp and hard to get a hold of. And that's so he can take the truth at the end and drive it home. So let me see if I can confuse you as we look at it a little bit. Verses uh, 1 through the first part of verse 8, he, he tells the story. And we'll just walk through that a little bit. So he told the disciples this story. There was a rich man who had a manager. Now when you think manager, I want you to think someone who was in charge of people and in charge of profits. Okay? Think of today a, a business owner. Someone who owns not a small business where they just kind of work it themselves. But maybe a, like a middle, a mid-sized business. Maybe a restaurant chain or something like that. And, and they own this. And rather than working day-to-day themselves, they hire like a, a, a chief financial officer, a chief executive officer kind of person. And set that person in charge. And that person's in charge of making sure the business runs well. Making sure that the people do what they're supposed to do. And the people are cared for. And ultimately that manager is responsible for the bottom line. And whether that business does well or does poorly is we're going to reflect on the manager. And the owner of the business is going to look at the manager, look at that person that he's left in charge if things go well or things go poorly. That was the manager in this story. He was competent. He wasn't, he wasn't hired and given this position because he was foolish. That, that at the time that he was hired, he would have been a competent person. He had also been entrusted with all that this man had gained and built, that this rich man had gained, that he had entrusted it to this person. It says, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Interestingly, the the word wasting there is the same word in the original language as when it says that the prodigal son squandered his inheritance. And there's a line that's being drawn. It's a connection there that like the prodigal son squandered what he was given, that this manager is squandering what he's been entrusted with. We, God gives us things to steward and we can either squander them or we can steward them well. And both of these people had squandered what they had been given. It's not clear whether he was at this point just wasting things because he was being lazy and at this point maybe he had become incompetent or just wasn't doing his job well or maybe more likely that he was actually stealing and he was taking things that weren't his and he was managing the business in a way that he was acquiring for himself but it was affecting the bottom line for his boss. So people come and they say, hey, this guy's wasting your money. Verse 2 And he, that is the rich man, called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. You know what that sounds like today? You're fired, right? Channel that inner Donald Trump before he was president. You're fired. Yeah, that's the Greek for all of that stuff I just read. You're fired. You don't have a job anymore. Now this guy was like, this was his livelihood, and he made a good living at it. This wasn't like, hey, I, you know, I'm 17 years old, and I work at McDonald's, and I make minimum wage, and I just lost my job, and oh, that's a shame. Now I'll move back in with my parents. No. 
This guy was like in management. Think again, think CEO, CFO, somebody that's doing really well, and now he's lost it. It's interesting that he doesn't try to like, um, he, he doesn't go to the, the boss and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you don't understand. You got bad information. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't say, uh, what they told you was a lie, and I actually will tell you the truth, right? He realizes that he has been caught and that he's in trouble. So what does he do? He does what any of us do. He starts to make plans. Okay, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my cars. I'm going to lose probably a lot of my friends. Like, I'm going to have nothing. What am I going to do here? Verse 3, the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? Now, Jesus is funny. Like, you guys, like the Bible has some humor in it. Jesus is telling the story. Like, he's making it up, right? Look what he inserts here. I'm not strong enough to dig. Okay, how many of us have desk jobs? I got my hand up. Come on, come on, be proud. Men with desk jobs. Jesus is making fun of us right here. If you're a dude and you have a desk job, Jesus just called you out and made fun of you. He said, you're not strong enough. I'm not strong enough to dig. I know how to use a computer. I do spreadsheets. I read books. I spent a couple hours behind a uh, uh, pressure washer yesterday afternoon, and I'm feeling it right about now, okay? He said, I'm not strong enough to dig. Oh, what am I going to do? And I'm too ashamed to beg. He says the thing, I like the life I have. I like what I've built for myself. Yeah, I'm either not very good at it or I am really good at taking what's not mine, but I like how I live and now I'm in trouble. What am I going to do? So he comes up with a plan because that's what we're good at, aren't we? Man, we're good at coming up with plans like, oh no, it's stacked against me. This is going to be bad. Now, remember as I read it that Jesus calls this guy dishonest. Because there are those, like, commentators who would say, like, some of the stuff that he does right now, he actually, like, kind of turns and, and starts doing the right thing. At no point in this parable does this dude do the right thing. He's always sleazy, okay? He's always sketchy. He's always, like, you know that coworker? You know that coworker? Right? He's always the bad guy. And he's going to do some things right now, and you're going to think, what in the world is going on? And Jesus' original hearers are thinking, what is happening? I'm not strong enough to dig. Verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Like, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to need friends. Like, I am going to need a couch to surf on. I'm going to need somebody to help me out. I may need a car to borrow. What am I going to do? Verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, so we know that the business that he was involved in was probably, like, there was probably an estate of some sort, um, relatively large estate and we know that it's going to have at least uh, a couple of different um, products that it produces and he's managing this massive estate from the amounts of uh, the quantities that are listed in this passage this is a very large estate with a great deal of income and so as he's been managing that what would happen is like they would sublet these different pieces so they may have an olive grove and they would sublet that and certain people would come and they would farm that and use that and and they would take some of the olives and then they would give some back as a form of rent as well that's kind of the thing that's happening here so these debtors come in in verse five uh, verse yeah verse five so summoning his master's debtors one by one he said to the first how much do you owe my master 
the guy says, I owe 100 measures of oil. Now, if you have a footnote in your Bible, that's about 875 gallons to 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of olive oil. Like, I don't know how much Italian cooking you do, but we have this, like, little jug that sits on the counter, and I love olive oil. And my wife will infuse it with garlic sometimes, and it's even more amazing, right? But 900 gallons of olive oil? That's a lot. And that was just like the portion that was owed to the guy, right? So like thousands of gallons maybe of olive oil are being produced from this thing. And I don't know how, I didn't do the research on how many trees it takes to make a gallon of olive oil. But remember how they pressed it? They, they had those presses that they would put the olives in and they would press it and they would ooze out. That's a lot of work. So he said, I owe that much. And he said to him, well, take your bill, sit down quickly. By the way, the quickly is inserted there on, on purpose to help us see, like, this guy's like, hey, let's make this quick. Come into my office. Let's have a chat. Shut the door behind you if you don't mind, right? Take your bill. Sit down quickly and write 50. So you don't really owe 900 gallons. You only owe 450 gallons. So if you're that guy, how you feeling? Oh, really? Man, there's a discount today. Awesome. Let me sign me up for that. Here it is right now. Let's get out of here while we still can. Verse 7, he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat, a thousand, twelve hundred bushels of wheat, a lot. And he said to him, well, take your bill and write 80. And he's like, wait a minute, the oil guy got a better discount than me, right? Do you price match? Like, what's happening here? No, he didn't say that. He didn't know what was going on. But he's just cutting the profits out, right? Does he own this? Does he have the legal right to do this? Right, This, this would be like, you know, me taking everybody's tithe money here and just being like, ah, you know what? I know we have all this, but I'm sure that they wanted like half of it to go into my personal bank account, right? No. I don't know if you know this, but pastors get in trouble for that kind of stuff, right? That's why we have like financial accountability here and the pastors don't know what anyone gives because it's safer that way, right? But like at the end of the day, this guy is doing some sketchy stuff and Jesus is telling this story on purpose. So he's told one guy, he's like, hey, the, the, the manager, the dishonest manager, tells one guy, cut the bill in half. He tells the other guy, slice the bill so you don't owe nearly as much as you did. And those people are looking at him like, wow, this is a great dude. How do you think that landowner, that rich man, first of all, man, when, when, when a lot of people, especially in Luke, this is not a major tangent, but usually when Luke says something about the rich man, like the rich man and Lazarus we'll look at in a few weeks and other times, usually it's like not real positive as to how they attained riches. But in that day, not always, but often, people became rich by maybe like not the greatest means, right? How do you think that that rich man is going to feel when he finds out what's happened? He's, he's told this guy, turn in your account books. Let's see the accounts. Let's look at it. He's running through there. Okay, man, I really like olive oil. This guy owes me like 900. Whoa, I only got 450. As Jesus is telling this story, the disciples are listening. The Pharisees, who are lovers of what? Like money, right? Are listening and hearing this and identifying with this. When we come to verse 8, and, and we get down with verse 7, and we come to verse 8, everybody's supposed to be thinking, this dude is going to get served right? Like this manager, this CEO is going to get blasted. Like, I don't know how they do it in the business world, but like the mafia is going to come in and it ain't going to be pretty, right? 
Like Al Capone comes in, he's got one of those machine guns with the cool like round magazine, and it's going to be on, right? He wakes up, there's a donkey's head, a horse's head in the bed next to him. Bad times. Everybody seems to be thinking, ooh, how is he going to get his for what he's done? He's been dishonest. And then verse 8 says, The master commended the dishonest manager. Put on the brakes. Hold on. Time out. Remember how parables are short stories that illustrate shocking spiritual truth? That's the shocker. Commended? Whoa, wait. That would be like the owner of the business bringing in the CEO and, and, and being like, okay, so like you went downstairs and you told all, all these people to like cut my profits in half, right? Wow, that was really smart. Good one. Well, you really pulled one over on me. Way to go. You see the confusion? You see the tension? It's like the people are listening to Jesus tell the story. Be like, Jesus, uh, you got it wrong, right? Jesus, uh, what are you talking about? The master commended the what kind of manager? Dishonest. Jesus is telling us, like this guy, he didn't like repent and just start giving back his share of things. And some commentators say like, you know, that inflation was actually the money that he was going to pocket. No. This dude is dishonest through and through. The master commended the dishonest manager. And, and in case you're wondering, like, I wonder what the Greek behind dishonest is. Like, it's probably, like, not too bad. It's wicked. It's unjust. It's unrighteous. That Those are the things that typify this dishonest person. But it says he commended him for his shrewdness, which is a weird word. Do you use shrewd in conversations, Right? That's not a, one we use a ton. What shrewd means is this. It means prudent, wise, clever, opportunistic. Prudent, wise, clever, opportunistic. In addition to that, it's, it's a morally ambiguous kind of word. In other words, dishonest? That's not ambiguous. Everybody knows what that word meant. Shrewd, if it's in a bad context, like it is here, if it's in a context where negative is happening, it can mean like that guy was really opportunistic and that wasn't a good thing. But it can also mean, it can be used in a, in a positive sense. But what Jesus is drawing out here is the, that this person was wise and that he was opportunistic, that he was, as he saw a problem and he was going to get in some big trouble, that he had to figure out what to do about it. And in that way, he was opportunistic. He was clever. He was commended for his shrewdness. Now, that's not even saying that Jesus is commending, like, the actions that he had. He's commending how he acted. And he's drawing us to a point. And so, again, if you find yourself right now, like, this is a little bit strange. Like, I was up, I was with it all the way up to verse 7, and I was figuring out that somebody was going to come with a shotgun, and that guy was going to be finished. And then the master commended him, and it just turned weird right there. That's what Jesus was doing on purpose. He took this story that was supposed to go in one direction and completely took it in a different direction so that he could teach the point that we find at the end of chapter, or at the end of verse 8. The second half of verse 8 says this, For, so Jesus is now interjecting, the story part stops, and Jesus is going to interject the point. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of the world would just simply be people who, we would say, non-Christians, right? 
for, for us today. The sons of the world are people who live by kind of like the world's economy, the world's value system. They, they treat money and possessions and things and, and, and use money and possessions and things for their own agenda and, and things like that. While the sons of light would be Christians, people who know God's word, understand God's word, know what God's word has to say about like our possessions and our finances and the way that we do that. And what Jesus is saying here is that it, it seems like the sons of the world, worldly people, are better at living out their values in, their si- in, in society than Christian people are sometimes at living out their values. Here's the point that Jesus is making as he, again, he uses this fairly common like, style of teaching in this parable to argue from the lesser to the greater. He's saying this, if worldly people... If worldly people are so good at using their resources to accomplish their agenda, shouldn't the people of God be even better at using our resources to accomplish God's agenda? You see that? He takes this picture of this guy that nobody would have seen as a good thing. And he's like, if those guys can get it and can live in their society in such a way that like makes them better, and if they can do things wisely enough, so that they accomplish their agenda, shouldn't the people of God be so much better at using what God's blessed us with to accomplish God's agenda? Like, that's the point of the parable. I know some of us are still like, uh, I'm still shaking my head a little bit. And that's good to be in that place. Because now what Jesus will do at the end of it is he will, in verses 9 through 13, take that point and show us specifically how to apply it. What it'll do, and this is the point where we put the things on the screen so some of you can begin to nod off. They told me in seminary that if you put stuff up there that people are visual and then they'll like pay attention. Is that true? Somebody's like, oh, yeah, true. I'm good. So Jesus will then in 9 through 13 take that point, like, like the people of God should be better at living out our values in the world than the people of the world are at living out their values for their agenda. He's going to take that point and he's going to apply it and give us like three, I, for, for me, what I've seen in here are three really specific ways that we can have an eternal perspective on our earthly possessions. The first one of those is found in verse 9. Don't waste your wealth. Invest eternally. Verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, there are a few things here because some of you are like, hang on. I'm reading what you wrote up on the board, but that sounds like get dirty money and buy friends with it. Right? And some of you are like, I know pastors. You guys are tricky. And what the Bible's saying is get dirty money and buy friends with it, and you're trying to spiritualize it. No, I'm really not. I'll, I'll try to prove that. But I want you to see that word, first of all, that word receive down there at the end. When it fails, they may receive you. Remember why in Jesus' story, the guy was going around doing the things that he was doing? Because he needed a place to be received into. And what Jesus now draws the point is saying, you will be received into an eternal dwelling. He's taking this temporal story and giving it an eternal twist. I want you to see what a different translation, uh, the way a different translation translates uh, verse 9. And this is uh, a real translation. It's not a paraphrase. It's actually a, a legitimate translation of Scripture. So what I'll put on the screen is not like just somebody's idea, but it's a way that we can understand this verse. The New Living Translation says this. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. 
then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you into an eternal home. That's another way to say this, the same thing that's found in verse 9. When he uses the phrase unrighteous wealth, I know it's easy for us to kind of go to like evil, wickedly. Remember what the King James called it? Filthy lucre. You guys remember? Anybody remember that? Merle, you know that word, right? Yeah. Mammon is another word. It's actually in here. It's a Semitic word that means money or possessions. But I like filthy lucre. I'm not sure what lucre is. Wasn't that like a card game? <laughs> That's right. It's filthy. It's cards. There's a verse. I'm kidding. Somebody takes that seriously and is like, Ah, oh, the pastor said we can't play cards. Only if there's money involved can you play cards. <clears throat> Someone's clapping. Wow. And this is the one that's going on the recording. It's even worse. Uh, when he says in verse 9, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, often Jesus does that just to differentiate what is heavenly from just what is like of the earth, right? He's not necessarily, he's not saying that all money is bad. We can understand that by seeing ways that he talks about it in other contexts. But he's, he's saying like there's, there's kingdom, there, there's worldly resource just like resources that we have in this world that aren't going to go with us. So I'm not going to take my paycheck or my bank account with me. That's an earthly or a worldly resource. My house, my cars, those things, they're not going to go with me. That's like an earthly, worldly resource. But he's talking about unrighteous wealth. That's why that translation, your worldly resources. What are the things that I have that aren't going with me, right? He says, use those resources to benefit others and to make friends then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you into the eternal home. He's saying this, use material resources for eternal purposes. Material resources for kingdom purposes. That's when you take your home that God has given you, whatever that home is like, and you invite somebody in to sit around your table, and you, have, you encourage somebody, and you help somebody in that way. When you sponsor a kid to go to camp, um, the things that we saw on the screen this morning are a perfect example, right? That this church and other churches have given financially so that these pastors can ride motorcycles from village to village and share the gospel. All of those kinds of things. Kingdom purposes. We use what God has given us, right? If God has given you like, you know, uh, whatever he's given you. I'm thinking about, because he's right down the aisle from me, my buddy Chris has a bass boat, and I think it's an eternal purpose when he takes me out on it as a pastor, because it's really encouraging to me. Right, Chris? Amen. But there are just all these ways that you have things, and we can encourage and, and help each other out with them. It's interesting, because at the end of that verse, it says, so that when it fails, why? Because your money is going to fail, right? It failed the prodigal son. It's going to fail. It's going to run out in one day. And we just hope that we outlast it, right? No, we hope that it outlasts us. But we're pretty sure that we will outlast it. Yeah. And if it outlasts us, then everybody's going to fight over it anyway. When it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. Now, this, that's, again, that's an, an interesting one to think about. That they may receive you into the, like that you have blessed people with your things. You have blessed people with your possessions. And that when it's all said and done, when you die, or when, when eternity comes, that there are going to be people in heaven that are like there to welcome you, there to receive you because of like how you've stewarded your earthly possessions and resources. Like that's what the text actually says. That there, there may be people in heaven because like God used you and through you, 
and the way that you stewarded your resources that you did something that got that, that helped them understand the gospel and I was searching for a way to help us to understand this and for a way to like illustrate this so that we really get it right don't waste your wealth invest eternally and I could, even all the way up to last night I got nothing so I'm preaching the first service and this is why I'm glad we have a warm-up right the first service don't tell them but I'm preaching and for some reason the Spirit of God just put laid this on my heart there's this cheesy I think it's 80s Christian song and at every high school Christian high school graduation you had to sing it when it when a Sunday school teacher had been a Sunday school teacher for like 130 years and then they retired you had to sing it and especially at missions conferences there was a song that you had to sing every year some of you are wondering and as soon as I say it thank you for giving to the Lord how many of you remember that song I was going to bring it up on YouTube. I won't. I'll spare you. I, I sang a part of it in the first service. That's not happening here. This goes out on the internet. That would be bad, right? But the idea behind the song is, is that, you know, I dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me. So there's these two people that are in heaven and they're walking along the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. I'm not sure. I mean, that's what the song says, so it must be biblical. And they're there and they're in heaven. And it's like these different people start coming up to this person who's there in heaven. And one of them is like, hey, you know, uh, you used to teach my Sunday school when I was eight years old. And, one, and you'd always say the salvation prayer. And then one day when you said it, I asked Jesus into my heart. And here I am because of your Sunday school class. And another one's a missionary. And he's like, hey, or it's, a, it's somebody. And they say, a missionary came to the church and his stories made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. And that's why I'm here today, Right? And then the refrain is, thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Now you can go YouTube it and you can just worship your little heart out. I guarantee you it's better said than sung. But I think that that's the point. When he says in verse 9, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That one of the best ways that we use our material resources for kingdom purposes is that we invest in people. When we buy motorcycles for a missionary, we're not investing in motorcycles we're investing in the gospel and in people when you sponsor a kid to go to camp you're investing in people when you put money in the offering plate you're we're investing in people he says don't waste your wealth invest eternally the second one number two is to be faithful with what's in front of you it says one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much see he's using the story he just told to again draw this parallel and make a point verse 11 then if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth or just the worldly money who will entrust you with the true riches like if you can't be trusted with just what's here and now and temporal how are you going to be really be trusted with like eternal things verse 12 and if you have not been faithful in which is another's who will give you what is your own and there's a lot there but i wanted to say it like this that your possessions are a litmus test for your faithfulness right like one of the greatest tests of your heart where your heart is and and how your heart works in relation to the things of god versus the things of the world is our possessions i had to take out a checkbook yesterday you guys remember those some of you are like never heard of it before right they got a checkbook and write it i actually wrote a check yesterday the checkbook is pink if that gives you any kind of indicator as to whose it is babe can i get the checkbook real quick <laughs> right 
But did you know that you, whether it's the, and we used to say check your, look at your checkbook and it'll tell you about your heart, right? Now you can just pull out the app and click it and be like, wow, she spent that on what? And you can really see, you can tell about your heart, can't you? By the, the way that we use our possessions. To be faithful with what's in front of us is whether we have a little or whether God's entrusted us with a lot, like are we faithful with that? Did you know that there's this lie out there that says, if I had more, I would give more? Total lie. As a matter of fact, some of the big Christian research companies that, that do this research, they say that's not true at all. Like percentage-wise, the people who tend to give the most are the people who are middle income or lower. There's these lies, like, like sometimes we let things like, well, well, well just wait. When... When this ship comes in, then I'll be set, and then I can do, right? Or, or, or what if? What if I had this? Or when I get? There are all these things that can keep us from being faithful with what's in front of us. If I had a bigger house, if I had a better car, if I had more money, if I had other stuff. And at the end of the day, that's not really what it's about. It's about being faithful with whatever God has put right in front of you right now being faithful in all those things. He was faithful in little. We had a cool opportunity last week. Uh, some of us had the opportunity to go to the Pierce County Prayer Breakfast. And it was, it's held at the, well, uh, this year for the first time, it was held at the fairgrounds here in Puyallup. And so uh, one of the people who spoke, the, the keynote person who, they always have someone who shares a testimony, uh, was Krista Linden. And Krista is the founder of Step-by-Step uh, -Step Ministries, Farm 12, um, all of the ministries that are there uh, down where Van Leer at Bald Farm used to be here in Puyallup. And probably most of you know, or maybe you've been to Farm 12, have seen like the, the event center and the, the restaurant and all the things that are there, the new uh, cafe, bakery, all the things that are there. And it's like, oh, wow, this is really cool. You may not know like all the story behind it, how all the proceeds go to the ministry, um, that it's, it's not like her making a bunch of money off it, but that the proceeds go to the ministry of helping, like, and they've helped tens of thousands of women um, who are in difficult situations get out of those difficult situations, find health care, find jobs. Um, most of what you see there when you go to Farm 12 is like job training for people and things like that. And this isn't a commercial for Farm 12 or any of those things, but what impressed me as we sat and we listened to her story is, like, I've never met her before. And they have people who come to these breakfasts that, like, have really incredible testimonies. And she got up there, and there's the podium, and she had her notes. And she seemed like a really unassuming person. Not real gregarious and, and real bold and out there. She seemed like a person who had a lot of purpose and knew her purpose. And she shared her testimony. But what was amazing to me is, like, we know the, the side of things that are now. But she kind of started and walked through. She said part of the story that she doesn't tell a lot of people. And it's really cool to hear how God inspired her to start step by step because she was a teacher and was training for being a teacher. And one of the things that she was going to do is go to this little girl's house and pick her up for something back in the day when you could actually do that as a teacher. She was going to go and pick her up to take her to the zoo. And she got to this apartment complex and she went upstairs and what she found that little girl living in and, and saw when she got into that apartment um, like inspired her to say things need to be different and what she saw in the living conditions with the mother who was a drug addict and then the little girl who was trying to take care of herself she said God used that moment to do something in her heart to say like something has to be different and she talked about like praying 
for what God wanted her to do. She talked about when they started to talk about like needing some space and some facilities and she had like these dreams and these visions but had to bring it to fruition and the amount of prayer, prayer, prayer that went into it. And when they wanted to buy the Van Leer up bulb farm and, and they signed the papers and then they're like, now we have to finance it and what all of that looked like and just continuing on with the different things and her desire even today to like impact with the gospel and impact in real ways all of these mothers and their children. And I love the fact that it's like the, the gal's a, a strong believer, loves the Lord, and all those things. But what I saw there was somebody who step by step by step was faithful with what was in front of her. God gave her and her husband seven daughters, right? This is my boy over here, Emmanuel. Seven daughters. They were all lined up up there on the stage. She talked about like leading through all of that and doing what she's doing through all that about of cancer that she had some other major things but just step by step being faithful with what's in front of you right now i think how many people if they had the ability and had the leadership and had the skill and all those things to do all of that would be willing to give away the profits how many of those people would be, how many of us would be like focused in our hearts and in our minds and they're like, this is God's direction for us and be faithful step by step along the way. He's faithful in little, he says. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in little is dishonest in much. There are faithful people and there are dishonest people and circumstances don't change you. Right? Your circumstances don't change you, they just reveal you. People who have very little, and all of a sudden they come into a lot of money. Did you know that doesn't, money doesn't change people? Did you know that? Money reveals people. I can speak in my very own family about people who have gone from having very, very little to suddenly having a lot and being the same person as I knew them growing up, generous and loving and giving. Because money doesn't change you. It just reveals what's already there in your heart. If I'm going to be faithful in little, I'll be faithful in a lot. If I'm going to be faithful in a lot, I'll be faithful in little. Number three, finally, in verse 13, he says we need to be single-minded in who we serve. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. This is the verse that's familiar probably to most of us. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Right? The picture being, if you were a servant and you had two masters who had two very different agendas, right? They had two different estates and they had two different ideas for what they wanted from you. You can't effectively serve both of them. And he says, that's what's true of godly values and worldly values as it comes, as it pertains to, like, our possessions. He's saying this, you can use money to serve God and others, or... You can serve money, but you can't do both. Think about that, right? I can use money, however much I have, however many possessions I have, whatever God's given me, I can use my possessions to serve God and, I can ser and to serve other people, or I can serve money, but I can't do both. If God is my master, money will be my servant. If God is my master, money will be my servant. But if money is my master, I will always be its servant. That's what he lays out. And being single-minded 
in who we serve. You cannot serve both God and money. I'm going to end today with another verse. And since I, um, since I quoted from the New Living Translation, and some of you might think that's a little too liberal, I'll quote from the King James now, and it'll balance it out, and we'll all be fine. But I memorized this verse in the King James as a little kid. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. Most of the modern translations just say set your mind on things above. Um, same word, different ideas. Or, uh, I'm sorry. In the original language, the word mind that they use for mind carried all of these ideas. It's where you felt from. It's where you thought from and all of those things. But your affections determine your investments. What I love, what I care about, what I think about, what is most important to me, my affections determine my investments. And what Jesus is calling his disciples to, what Jesus is condemning, his, condemning the Pharisees for, and what he's calling all of us as followers is to have an eternal perspective on our earthly possessions. And so that's what we're being invited to today, whether it's a little or it's a lot, is to have that eternal perspective on our earthly possessions. I'm going to pray for us toward that end this morning and then that's for each of us to deal with between ourselves and God as to how we live that out God it is good this morning to hear from your word and to be challenged specifically in, in this regard God when, when you talk about these things um, it can make us, it can make me uncomfortable we have so much and it's easy even, even to look around in our culture and, and to think oh I don't have as much as that person or if I had more, then I would do this. Or, God, I just pray that you would help us to be faithful. That the things that we say that we love would really make an impact on the way that we invest. Help us to invest eternally, invest in people. To just be faithful with what you've placed right there in front of us. God, I just pray that you would um, challenge those of us who need to be challenged with this and give us real specific ways. Holy Spirit, that you would convict um, there are those here, God, who, who don't have your thoughts and your perspective on how we handle our earthly possessions, um, that you would convict in that way. And then for others who maybe just need to be encouraged uh, to continue moving, that you would provide that encouragement. Uh, that we would continue to s just look at ways that we can bless others and we can serve you with what you've given us. Uh, God, we pray that you would find us faithful, and we're thankful for the privilege and the opportunity to serve you.